Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you join me one more time in the Gospel of John in chapter 20 in verses 30 through 31. As we wrap up today what has been a two-year pilgrimage through the Gospel of John, just short of 90 messages, I hope that a few of them have, I hope that someone laughed over there, I think. I hope that, I hope that there has been some blessing to your heart as we have gone through the Gospel of John. What a blessing it has been in my life to dive down deep into this book and to, and to study it to get together has just been such a blessing in my life. And we come today to the last time that we will be in the Gospel of John together um, through this study. Dr. Milliken, uh, two weeks ago, did a wonderful job closing us out. But now today, as you turn to John chapter 20, I want you to have your fingers ready because we're going to be moving back a lot, back and forth today throughout the Gospel of John as we close it out. As you've made your way there, I want you to use your imagination with me for just a moment. I want you to pretend that this Christmas, a very generous uh, member of your family pays for an all-expenses-paid vacation for you and your family to go to Disney World this summer. Or perhaps you don't like Disney World, and this example won't work well for you. You just substitute your favorite vacation destination spot and just pretend when I say Disney World that I'm saying the mountains, the beach, or wherever it is that you would like to go. But for, my, for, uh, for this illustration, I'll say Disney World. They, they volunteer to pay for all of it. And so you are so excited about you and your family going. You plan it out. You, you prepare and you, you do your investigation, what park you need to go to on what day, what snacks you need to eat, what, uh, uh, what all rides and, and attractions you ought to see while you are there. You plan everything out. And then the week before, you begin to pack your bags. You begin to get everything ready. You gas up the car. You pack up the, the vehicle. And you and your family are on your way to Disney World. You're driving to Disney World, and then you've made pretty good progress in your journey so far. You see it, the first sign, Disney World, 150 miles. And imagine now you pull over with your family, and you get out, you unpack, and you look at that sign, and you say, man, What a beautiful sign. I mean, the green and the white and the font. Is that that Times New Roman that they used on the Disney World 150 miles font? Wow, what a beautiful sign. And you take pictures with your, it's hard to believe, right? Someone would do that. Although there are people who have taken pictures next to mile marker number one. Have you seen that? Some of you maybe why would you do that? Did you pull over and take a picture? There's only a billion mile marker number ones in the United States, and you're going to take a picture. It didn't start at Plymouth Rock and ever there's subsequent numbers after that. There's a, there's a lot of mile marker number ones, but uh, let's just, I'm digressing. Let's get back to the point here. You take a picture, you, you camp out there at the Disney World 150 miles sign, and then you pack up and you turn around and you go home. That'd be kind of ridiculous, wouldn't it? 
But let's say maybe you, you saw that first time, you took pictures, you, you're going down the road and you Disney World 100 miles. And you pull over, you take pictures, look at that sign, how wonderful and beautiful. And look, they put little Mickey Mouse ears over the zeros. How awesome is that? And then you turn around and you go home. Of course you wouldn't do that. It's absurd to think that that would even be a scenario. But I think that's precisely the pitfall that lies ahead of us when we study the Gospel of John. Because you see, my friends, the sign is not the destination. In this Gospel, we are given several miracles, which John will call signs. We'll look at that in just a moment. We'll see several miracles, and it is the temptation of the believer to stop and just look at the miracle. My goodness, how beautiful, how wonderful, how awesome this is this miracle. And the miracles of Jesus are awesome. I mean, no director or cinematographer could capture the drama or the action of every miracle recorded in the Gospel of John. No screenplay writer, uh, no playwright could capture all the nuances of every miracle that we will read in the Gospel of John. The miracles are awesome to study. But the miracles are not meant, or they're not placed in the Gospel of John particularly, they're not placed there for us to marvel at the, at the miracles, but they are signs pointing us into a different direction. Let me show you what I mean. John chapter 20, begin reading in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, I have not written a comprehensive book of all of the miracles of Jesus. If I were to have written a comprehensive book, he says at the end of chapter 21, there wouldn't be enough paper, there wouldn't be enough ink, the world couldn't contain all of the miracles that I witness. It's not comprehensive. It's not even necessarily in chronological order. But what John is saying here is, I'm writing down, the Holy Spirit is directing me to write down these specific signs for a reason, to point you in the right direction. The miracle is not the destination. The destination for us, as we look at these miracles, is belief. Destination, believe, is the title of our message today. And what we're going to do is we're going to go back through all of the signs that John has mentioned in this gospel, and we're going to see how all of that points us to this belief, that the miracles are not an end in and of themselves. They are a means to an end. They point us in the direction of belief, okay? So let's pray, and then we will begin to move rapidly throughout the gospel of John together. Father in heaven, again, I call upon you and ask you and beg you, that by the power of your spirit, you would speak to your people today. You know my own weaknesses. You know my own inabilities. Now, Father, I pray that today, especially in this very moment, that, Father, you would speak through this very weak preacher and you would proclaim to your people the power of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first sign mentioned in the Gospel of John, we find in John chapter 2 in verses 1 through 13. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Turn with me in your Bibles 
uh, to that destination for this moment, for this pit stop, for this sign that's going to point us in the right direction. Uh, I, I, I count at least nine, no less than nine signs in the Gospel of John. So let's begin with the first one. It it kind of hits us out of the blue. It would not be the first miracle that you and I would have recorded if we were going to want to get people to believe in Jesus, and yet this is precisely what the Holy Spirit puts upon the heart of John. The first miracle is in the very early ministry of Jesus. He is in Cana of Galilee. It is the third day uh, his whole crew, all of his disciples haven't even been gathered together yet, and Jesus has been invited to a wedding. Do you remember we looked at this uh, over a year ago together uh, as we studied this passage? Jesus is invited to a wedding. Uh, obviously, it's a wedding of someone in town that his family knows because his mother, Mary, is serving at that wedding, and something very embarrassing has happened at the wedding the wine has run out. Now, it was the responsibility of the groom to provide everything for that wedding. It was, it was the town event. It was the event of your life, and the groom has disappointed not only the bride, but everyone at that wedding. He has not provided enough for everyone to enjoy and to celebrate. But Mary's working in the back, and she hears that the wine has run out. And what is her response? Go talk to Jesus. Go talk to Jesus. Let's talk to Jesus about this. Mary knew where to take her problems to. She was his mother, and yet she, she knew where to take her problems to. She went to Jesus. And Jesus' response in chapter 2 seems like it may be rude, but it's not really being rude. Jesus is saying, well, what does this have to do with me? I'm not the, I'm not the uh, groom. This is not my wedding. In a sense, this is what he's saying. Uh, my time has not yet come. But Mary tells the servants, do whatever it is Jesus tells you to do. And Jesus looks over in the corner, and there are six earthenware jars, very large jars, and they are empty. Now, those jars have been put there for cleanliness. It was spiritual, physical uh, uh, cleanliness. Uh, they wanted to wash every dish and, and wash it just right, wash their hands right. They were very concerned about uh, everything being clean on the outside because they thought it would make them clean on the inside. But the first thing we learn in chapter 2 is that these jars are empty. They have been used up. All right, so number one, the joy has run out in the wedding, okay? There's no joy. The wine is gone. The celebrating is over. Now he looks over. The vessels that are intended to help keep them clean are empty. And Jesus says, fill them up. So they go and fill them up, and he didn't wave his hand over them, right? There's no abracadabra. There's no, like, standing up and saying, become wine. Just they go and they fill up these jars with water. They bring it back to the master of the feast, and he says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to give that at first, and after everybody has drunk plenty of wine, then you're supposed to give them the, the worst stuff, but you saved the best for last. And when we looked at John chapter 2, when we looked at the wedding in Cana and Galilee, we were in awe of how Jesus is able to display his creative power, how the one who 
created water, was able to just, without saying anything, turn that water into wine. A famous theologian once said that the water saw the face of its Savior and blushed and turned into to wine. I, I, I like that. I think that's sweet. But the point of that passage is, it's pointing us to Jesus being the Savior, showing us that Jesus is the one who can restore our joy. Have you been robbed of joy this year? We're at the end of 2022, about to begin 2023. It's hard to figure that it has, 2022 has rolled by so fast, and yet every year seems to get more and more, I mean, it goes at a faster pace each and every year. But perhaps this year, you've had joy seem to be robbed from you. My friends, I want you to know of our Jesus, he is the one who has come to restore our joy. He's the one who's come to, to purify us. You see, that water that was in those jars could never really make someone clean on the inside. They could wash their hands, and they could make their hands clean and get the dirt off their hands, but they could never get the guilt and the sin off of their heart. But Jesus had come not only to restore joy, but he had come to procure peace. And as we look at this miracle, it is not an end of itself. It's pointing us not to the miracle, but to the miracle worker, to Jesus, the one who restores our joy, the one who can purify us. My friends, do you need joy this year? Do you need joy right now? Are you walking through difficult times? I want you to know Jesus is the one who can provide joy in the midst of sorrow. Did you know that? In the midst of difficult times, believers, we can have that joy, 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 joy down in our hearts. We can have that joy based upon what Jesus has accomplished for us, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. This first miracle points us in that direction. The second miracle, which most theologians do not count to be a miracle, it's a sign in John chapter 2, we find in verses 13 through 22. And this is Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Now, the reason that I count this as a miracle, the reason why I believe that this is a sign uh, that, that points us to who Jesus is, is Jesus walks into Jerusalem. It's Passover. So Jerusalem has gone from 200 to 300,000 people in population to over a million. It's flooded. It's like the road that I tried to drive down in Memphis yesterday, okay? It's like going into Walmart during December. I tried to make a Facebook video yesterday, but I, I, someone called and it was best because I want to keep my testimony, but I was praying, Lord, if you get me out of this Walmart in December, I'll never come back to Walmart in December again. Some of you haven't been out to Walmart in December. You know what I'm saying, it's just the people everywhere crowded in on you, and then you got your kids in the basket, and you, anyways, you're doing all that, and it's just, it's the Jerusalem is shoulder to shoulder. And so the, the police force for the, the temple is on, on high, on, they're on the highest uh, danger zone. They are watching out for everything. Jesus is going to walk into the temple, into the temple complex, and he sees a disturbing sign. He's in the court of the Gentiles, a place meant to draw people near to God who were far off from him, and he sees that the high priest is using this place 
to mark up prices to sell sheep to people who want to come and make a sacrifice at an at a exorbitant price, taking advantage of the weak, taking advantage of those who are far off, really pushing them further away. And what does Jesus do? Jesus says, this is not the way my house ought to be. It ought to be a house of prayer. And Jesus is filled with zeal, and he makes a, a cord, or he makes a, a, a whip, and he goes and he drives everybody out. Now, where's the miracle in this? Jesus, this is at the beginning of his ministry, okay? This is a time where uh, the authorities in Jerusalem could have and ordinarily, you would think, would have taken him out, apprehended him, imprisoned him, executed him, not far from one another. All of them would have happened in the same place. And yet here is Jesus going and clearing out his house, his temple, to draw people near to him. All of this is pointing us in the direction that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's not just a miracle worker. He's the one who desperately cares about purity and holiness. He is the only righteous one. He hates sin and he longs for fellowship with man. That's the second sign. But I want you to join me now in chapter four as we look at the third sign. John chapter four in verse 46. Jesus has just gotten back from a Samaria he has gone on the road out of the way and he has proclaimed the gospel to that Samaritan woman living in sin and all of Samaria and her, her little village, became, their, a revival broke out because they came to know Jesus and Jesus leaves Samaria and comes back to his people. He leaves a, a desert that had turned into an oasis and he comes back to a place that should be an oasis and finds it deserted. He comes back into his own people, and here in John chapter 4 and verse 46, as he enters once again into Cana of Galilee, his very own people, they're all demanding signs. You have to show us something. They wanted a show, okay? Uh, when you read of big crowds following Jesus, crowds do not necessarily equate followers, Okay? There's a lot of people in this sanctuary today, and my hope and prayer is that each one of you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but your presence in here today does not make you a follower of Jesus. Crowds do not equate being a follower. So they gather around Jesus. They long to see a sign, and amongst them is an official. Now, he was either official of Rome or perhaps of Herod's court, we don't really know from this passage. And he has come a long way to see Jesus because he is desperate. His son is at home and is dying. What causes a man to leave the bedside of his dying son? Hope. Hope that this one who has performed miracles might perform one more miracle and might perform it in his life and on his son. And so the centurion the, says to Jesus, Jesus, please come and heal my son. He's, he's dead, he's, or he's, he's about to die. He's lying on his deathbed. You gotta come and save my son. And then Jesus rebukes the crowd. Unless you see signs and wonders, verse 48, you will not believe. But the official persists, sir, come down before my child dies. So Jesus, far off from this child, says, go and your son will live. It takes that centurion a whole day to make it back to his son. As he is on his way back, 
he is believing that what Jesus said is true. And before he gets into his town, his servants come out to him. And they say, we got good news. Your son has been healed. And they're probably thinking it's just by chance. And he says to them, what time was he healed yesterday? And it's almost like he says, don't tell me. I bet you it was 4 p.m. That's not the actual time. But I'm, I bet you it was 4 p.m. It was the same time that Jesus told me he would be healed. And Jesus heals this young boy from a long way off. This sign is not to show us that he is just the great physician, but it's to point us to Jesus, not in all that Jesus can just do those things, but in all just of who Jesus is, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the one and only Son of God. The third sign in chapter 4, verses 46 through 54, Jesus heals the official son. But in chapter 5, verses 1 through 17, we see, we see that Jesus makes the lame to walk. A man had been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years. Do you know what the lifespan was of a man in the New Testament times in Palestine? 35 to 40. 35 to 40, the average lifespan of a man in Jesus' time, what Scholars say the average lifespan is around 35 to 40. This man was, was paralyzed from the waist down. They had placed him in this place. It's called the Pool of Bethesda. It had colonnades. It had a, a roof covering. It's supposed to be a place of mercy, but it was anything but that. All of the sick were laid there, and they looked down at this pool that was there, and there was an intermittent spring that would pop up. And the rumor was that if that if that water started to move, an angel had just touched it, and if you can make it down to that water in time, if you can be the first person in that water, you'll be healed. This man who was paralyzed for 38 years, he's now at the end of his life. If you'll, excuse me, uh, this, may sound not, this may sound politically incorrect, his, his legs were useless, he couldn't walk, and now he's at the end of his life. I mean, Jesus, why don't you save some younger person who can go and tell, but that wasn't his plan. That wasn't his time. He comes to this man who is on the edge of the, the lifespan that is expected for him, and Jesus has the audacity to tell him, hey, would you like to walk? Now, wouldn't that be a pretty rude thing to say to somebody who can't walk? I think so. I think that if I did that here, I'd probably be fired. Hey, would you like to walk? That's insensitive. You're going to be walking. You're going to be out on the street. Very insensitive. But Jesus asks him this sincere question. His response to him is uh, kind of sarcastic. Oh, yeah, of course I like to walk. But there's no one to carry me down to that pool. Someone always beats me down to that pool. Besides that, I'm 38 years old. I'm at the end of my life. There's no hope. And what does Jesus say to him? Get up. Take up your bed and walk. And he gets up, and he takes up his bed, and he walks. And we look at this miracle, and we say, wow, look at this miracle. Look what took place. It's a sign to point us towards Jesus. Yes, what Jesus can do is awesome. And in some respects, you can't separate what Jesus can do from who he is. But it's all pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that we would gaze upon him, that we would love him, that we would open up his word daily and not just look at those miracles, but say, Look at my Jesus. 
Look at my Jesus. His people would cling to him. In chapter 5, we see that he makes the lame to walk. And not only does, does he restore our joy and bring purity and procure our peace, not only can he provide a healing for us, but when we're at the end of our rope, Jesus is the, is the only hope. Fifth sign, John chapter six. Fifth sign, John chapter six. We'll move quickly. It's the penultimate uh, miracle of, of the book of John. This is the central one, John chapter six. Uh, the scripture says that Jesus is standing out on the plains. People gather around to listen to him and Jesus is gonna take this meal that could fit in one hand and he's gonna feed 5,000 people with it. And when he's done feeding them with the food that you could fit in one hand, right? The bread would have only been about that small, probably maybe a little bit bigger. The fish would have probably been more like sardines. It was a boy, as a meal meant for a boy. And Jesus is gonna take this, he's gonna pray over it, he's gonna break it, and he's gonna pass it out, and all of the 5,000 people will be fed. And in John chapter six, we see this wonderful miracle, but even more than that, we see that he is the God who provides. He is able to take care of his own. This is a sign that points us that Jesus is Lord. He is our Lord, the one who takes care of us. Sixth sign, John chapter six, verses 16 through 21, Jesus walks on water. Now, this is my favorite miracle to talk about of Jesus. Uh, have any of you been to Branson and you've seen the Jesus play there? Anyone? Oh, it's awesome. This scene is phenomenal. It looks real, and they're not a sponsor. I'm not getting paid to say this, but it is awesome. I mean, it looks real. It looks like Jesus is walking on the water, and it, it inspires our imagination. But here, Jesus' disciples are out in the middle of the sea. The waves are rolling. They're working as hard as they can, and they can't make it back to land. And they look out in the water, and lo and behold, here's Jesus walking on top of this sea. As the waves are billowing by, Jesus is walking on top of them. Now, there's a lot of rich imagery there, right? But the, the sea, the, the water is a place of mystery and of chaos, you can't control your life when you're out on the sea. In some respects, when you go out on the sea, you take your life into your own hands. Throughout the Old Testament, the water, the oceans, the seas are known as a place of chaos, and yet here is Jesus walking on top of it, coming to his people. It's a sign pointing us to who he is. He is Lord over creation. He is the Lord who is able to provide for us, who's able to restore joy, who's able to procure our peace. He is the one who is, even though he is on top of the water, he is not tainted by the water. He is the one who has come down to earth to take our sins upon him, although he himself never sinned once. This sign points us to Jesus, John chapter six, the next miracle happens. The next sign is the seventh sign in John chapter nine. A man born blind. They're just walking past him. He's a beggar on the street. He's blind. They're walking past this man, and the disciples casually say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, why is this man blind? Is it because of some sin that he did? Which, by the way, again, of extremely insensitive thing to say. 
but it would have been ingrained in him his whole life, that blind man. He would have known the pain of every day feeling as if it was something that he or his family had done to earn this blindness. And Jesus says, no, his blindness was prepared for this very moment so that you could see the glory of God. He takes some dirt from the ground, he spits in it, he puts on his eyes and tells him to go wash in, in the pool of Siloam. And when he comes back, he comes back seeing. We see that miracle. And we may be, we may, with all of our uh, medical prowess today, with everything available to us, we may be like, Okay, big deal, what is it? Okay, he's an optometrist, or he's able to correct these things. This man was born blind, and Jesus healed him. And the point is not the miracle. It's to point us to Jesus is the one who has come to heal our spiritual blindness. Eighth sign. I'm aware of the time. I'm working. Eighth sign, chapter 11. Jesus has a good friend named Lazarus. Lazarus has passed away. Jesus knows that he is sick, but he tarries. He waits because he knows that there is a plan. There is, in his sovereignty, uh, an appointment set up not to heal Lazarus of his sickness. He's already done that before, but now to raise Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus comes into that town after Lazarus has been dead for four days there's no way that he can come back from that. His body has begun to decay, and Jesus walks up to the tomb, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And he rose Lazarus from the grave. He is the resurrection and the life. If any man believes in Jesus, even though he die, yet shall he live. This miracle is beautiful and awe-inspiring and wonderful, but it's intended to draw our eyes not to the miracle, but to the miracle worker, Jesus, and setting your eyes on him. By the way, we serve that same Jesus. Just because we don't see those things today doesn't mean that he has changed. He is the same God who never changes. The eighth sign, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But now I want you to see with me this final sign procured for us in chapter 20. It may seem easy, at least, by comparison of this miracle, to see how Jesus could raise someone else. But now, in chapter 20, Jesus is dead. And they made sure. By their expertise, they drew out every drop of blood that they could get out of his body. Let's do it by punching. Let's do it by pulling. Let's do it by putting a crown of thorns on his head. Let's do it by whipping his back. Let's take out everything we can from this miracle worker. And then when we put him on a cross and nail his hands and his feet to a cross, and when we put a sign above his head to ridicule him, then let us pass by and say, save yourself, save yourself. Oh, he was dead. They made sure of it. Every last drop of blood they could get when they took the spear and they shoved it into his side and out came blood and water. They made sure. They placed him in a grave. They made sure he was dead, wrapped up tight. They made sure that they had 
guards surrounding the grave. They made sure he was dead and no one would take his body. First day passed. Second day passed. But my friends, the third day, all that the world could do to make sure he was dead could not stop him from showing us that he is the one and only Son of God, the Christ, the risen Savior, who's come to procure our peace, to restore our joy, to provide for us what we could not provide for ourselves, to point us to him. And he's not doing so proudly. Like it's not a sin to look at Jesus or for him to want us to look at him because he knows that in him is the only place that we can find true joy. In him is the only place that we can find true peace. And John has written these things, not so that we would say, oh, look at that miracle. Wasn't it wonderful? John has written these things so we would say, look at our Jesus. Isn't he wonderful? Look at what he's done. Look at what he's doing in my life. Look at what he's going to do. And he's promised us, my friends, he's promised us that he's coming again. No one knows the time or date. Oh, I pray it'd be soon. Oh, how wonderful if I'd be here proclaiming Jesus. And we all air five one another as we're headed up to heaven together as he comes back to get us. Wouldn't that be wonderful? But the Bible says he's coming back, and he's coming back soon. There's going to come a day when it's too late for you to believe. Today is the day to believe that God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to this earth to live a perfect life than to die on the cross for your sins because we deserve death. Our sin deserved death. He died on the cross in our place, and he rose on the third day, and he promises life to all who repent and believe. He'll make you a new creation. If you turn from your sins and you turn to Jesus, he'll make you a new creation. You'll be born again, saved, and belonging to him. And when I look at the Gospel of John, I see all of these signs, and aren't they wonderful? But you know what? They're just signs that point me to him. And my hope today is that you have reached destination belief. Thank you for listening to First Importance. It is our prayer that you have been blessed by this podcast. We welcome you to join us in person for worship at First Baptist West Memphis on Sundays at 1045 a.m., where our desire is to love God care for one another, and share the gospel.